October 1944. The Empire of Japan, once victorious in every Asian and Pacific land, air, and sea battle, is crouching like a wounded tiger, waiting to pounce as American soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines close in on its lair in the Philippine Islands. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you'll hear from veterans of the October 1944 Battle of Leyte Gulf and why the Americans who fought in it still describe this desperate fight as revenge for Pearl Harbor. In this heart-thumping War Stories podcast, you'll hear the voices of U.S. Army soldiers who've landed with General Douglas MacArthur on the beaches at Leyte and went on to defeat Imperial Japanese troops intent on killing as many Americans as possible in suicidal battles. You'll also meet audacious American sailors who defeated the best and biggest of Japan's Imperial fleet and won against what should have been impossible odds because Admiral Bull Halsey was deceived by a Japanese ruse. Listen carefully while my friend James Holloway describes how the little destroyer he was aboard, the USS Benian, suddenly became decisive in sinking Japan's invincible battleship, Yamashiro. If his narrative doesn't move you, seek immediate medical attention because your heart has stopped. Every naval school in the world teaches lessons learned from the battle at Leyte Gulf. It was the last great naval engagement in the long history of war at sea. The voices you're about to hear are those of men who can honorably say, been there, done that. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the right job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then... ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. I'm Oliver North. Welcome to War Stories. This is the deck of the USS New Jersey, now permanently berthed in Camden, New Jersey, as a museum. This vessel's illustrious career includes serving as Admiral Bull Halsey's flagship at what's been called the last great sea battle of World War II. In October of 1944, the Japanese made a desperate gamble at Leyte Gulf in an effort to stop America's march toward Tokyo. The battle also avenged the sneak attack of 7 December 41 as some of the ships resurrected from the bottom of Pearl Harbor took on the Japanese fleet. Tonight, you'll hear from some of the men who landed with General Douglas MacArthur on the beaches at Leyte. You'll also meet some of the sailors who, when faced with the biggest and best of the Japanese Navy, headed straight for what the rules of modern warfare spelled as certain defeat. Leyte Gulf, the battle on the high seas. That's next on War Stories.
The 7 December 1941 Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor killed 2,403 Americans. It also sank or damaged 21 warships, among them the USS Maryland and West Virginia. Within weeks, a change in command placed what was left of the Pacific Fleet under a Texan, Admiral Chester Nimitz. He faced a daunting task, quickly rebuilding his fleet and using it to take on the battle-hardened Japanese Imperial Navy. Reporting to Nimitz was a tough New Jersey-born vice admiral, William F. Bull Halsey. On the day Pearl Harbor was bombed, he was in charge of the Enterprise. James Hornfisher is the author of The Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors. He wanted to chase down this carrier force that struck Pearl Harbor. That would have been a suicidal act, but that's what he was all about. It was Halsey seeing the destruction at Pearl Harbor who declared, before we're through with them, the Japanese language will be spoken only in hell. But revenge would have to wait. For the first six months of the war, the better armed and numerically superior Japanese continued an unabated rampage across the Pacific. Four months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Philippines fell into Japanese hands. Army General Douglas MacArthur was ordered to the safety of Australia by President Roosevelt. The sullen MacArthur vowed he would return. MacArthur obviously has an almost spiritual investment in returning to the Philippines. It meant everything to him. Richard Frank is a Vietnam veteran and an expert on the war in the Pacific. It was the thing to which MacArthur was most devoted for the first three quarters of the war. While MacArthur pieced together a strategy for retaking lost ground, in June of 42, Nimitz scored a hard-won victory at the Battle of Midway. American forces drove west relentlessly. Nimitz's rebuilt navy and the Marines retaking the Central Pacific, while MacArthur's army was victorious as it island hopped north from Australia. Their target, Japan. Summer 1944. Two years of heavy losses of aircraft and air crews had taxed the Japanese navy to the brink. A slaughter in the skies over the Philippine Sea was the death knell for the once mighty Japanese Air Force. Our pilots claimed 380 aerial kills, virtually wiped out the last vestiges of Japan's naval air power. There's a submarine cordon all around the Japanese Empire. The supplies of natural resources between Dutch East Indies and Japan have been virtually choked off. The Japanese are being pressed across the board. They knew that the blow was coming. Mark Petey is the co-author of Kaigun. The problem with the Japanese naval high command, they didn't know where. Show one, two, three, and four. Show one is for the defense of the Philippines. Show two is for the defense of Formosa. Show three will defend any American attack on the southern Japanese islands. And show four is designed to repel an invasion of northern Japan itself. Show is the Japanese word for victory. The plans to repel the invaders were the brainchild of Admiral Suimo Toyota. It's an elaborate, ornate plan. They believe in the divine hand guiding events. And if the divine hand is on their side, they're bound to succeed. MacArthur and Nimitz battled over strategy. MacArthur was firmly committed to retaking the Philippines, but Nimitz wanted to bypass them and retake Formosa, now known as Taiwan. It's a matter of personal honor. MacArthur feels a personal debt to the Philippine people. I shall return. I shall return, he said. FDR himself brings his two commanders to Hawaii for a sit-down. Such was the force of MacArthur's personality that he was able to convince not only FDR, but Nimitz himself 
that returning to the Philippines was, was what we needed to do. The Japanese realized that if we seized the Philippines with air and sea bases there, we would cut them off from their key resources, particularly oil. MacArthur wanted his own fleet, and so he had the 7th Fleet under Admiral Kincaid, who had had a great deal of combat experience. On October the 14th, 700 ships left New Guinea and headed for the Philippines. That's a lot of ships. One member of MacArthur's landing force was 22-year-old Paul Austin from Fort Worth, Texas, the commander of F Company, 24th Infantry. How far outside of port are you before you find out what your objective is? Three days. They brought in a relief map, and on the map they had put the name where we was going at Leyte. Leyte, the 110-mile-long southernmost part of the Philippine archipelago, was chosen as the landing site because its beaches were approachable from different directions. When the American armada bearing down on Leyte Gulf was spotted, Admiral Toyota frantically implemented show plan one. The plan was to filter three surface fleets through the Philippine archipelago and have them unite on the west coast to destroy what American naval forces they found there and to turn on landing positions that we had made on the east coast of Leyte. Bull Halsey was in charge of protecting MacArthur's landing forces. The third fleet under Halsey is powerful enough to challenge, in Halsey's words, the combined fleets of the world. So at this point in the war, it's a matter of managing the, these, this overwhelming bounty of resources in a way that's going to strangle Japan, give them no hope to mount a counteroffensive. The Japanese Navy had conceived that a naval war with the United States would turn on the outcome of what they saw as a great and decisive fleet encounter. They chose to make it a decisive battle. And that was perfectly fine with Halsey. He's an aggressive commander who wants nothing more than to, to, to tangle with the Japanese main combat fleet. Halsey would have given his life to have been able to command American forces at Midway. He missed the Battle of the Philippine Sea. So this appears to be Halsey's great chance. I know that last night aboard the ship that it was unusually quiet. Everyone's thinking about, will I make it to the beach? Then what? On October 20th, the 7th Fleet Battle Line, these are the old veterans of Pearl Harbor, the Pennsylvania, the Maryland, the West Virginia. They move in and begin bombarding Leyte Island as preparation for the invasion. You remember going back up on deck with Ben? in the hours just before the landing? I sure do. It was about 6 o'clock that morning when they dropped anchor. And Paul and I stood up there on the, on the deck and watched the pre-invasion bombardment. And that was quite a show. 167,000 Fourth of July all at once. 26-year-old Ben Wally from Helena, Montana, was the executive officer of G Company, 24th Infantry Division. Do you remember how long that ride was to the beach? And that LCVP? Three quarters of an hour. Rough? Pretty rough, yes. But only there was so much going on that you, you know, that you just, let's get there and get it over with. Drop that ramp and let's get ashore. I can remember two LSTs that were coming to shore, and the Japanese took two of them out of action. They never hit the shore. Did your LCVP make it all the way to the beach? Yes. We got, we got ashore about 10 o'clock, and I guess it was about maybe uh, half an hour, three-quarters of an hour after that that 
that MacArthur came ashore with his entourage. What did that mean to the troops? It was uplifting. We had heard that phrase, I shall return, over and over. If we can get this man back to the Philippines, we might be able to go home. True to his word, Douglas MacArthur finally set foot back on Philippine soil on 20 October 1944, two years, seven months, and nine days after vowing to return. The footage seen around the world of his Leyte landing has become one of the most memorable and controversial images of World War II. Some people claiming that this was all staged as part of Dugout Doug's big return. There were a lot of scurrilous stories. Uh, they were absolutely false. MacArthur did, in fact, come ashore on Red Beach. Now, it's true that the picture of him coming ashore with this look of destiny looked to be a little too much in stage, but it was real. His uh, best biographer has gently suggested that the look is actually prompted by the fact that the general didn't want to get his feet wet. And he got him very wet. And he got him very wet. MacArthur had made his triumphant return to the Philippines, but the real battle still lay ahead. When we return, you'll hear the amazing story about a one-man wave of destruction. Twenty October 1944, Douglas MacArthur's Sixth Army storms the beaches at Leyte, making it the largest amphibious operation in the Pacific to date. The total Japanese troop strength on the island the day that the landing happens? There's about 20,000. And American troops landing total? There's about 80,000, 90,000 on A-Day coming in. Does most of your rifle company make it in safely? I lost, I lost four men on the beach. We are very fortunate on A-Day. I think we only have about uh, 49, 50 men killed in the invasion force in the course of the entire day and several hundred wounded, which for a Pacific landing is, is a low casualty rate. Low casualties and the quick seizure of a substantial beachhead had made A-Day a rousing success. But as night descended on the island, it soon became evident the Japanese were saving their best for darkness. They launched a major counterattack down what was called Highway 1. It was about midnight, uh, the first night. I said, Sergeant, do you hear wagon wheels? And he said, yes, I think I do. And uh, it was shortly thereafter that all hell broke loose. I had Moon out in a, a, a listening position, which was maybe 20 yards. Out. Moon was Harold Moon, a 23-year-old private from Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Japanese came down the highway and in short order they killed or wounded every other American in the forward positions except Harold Moon. For the next four hours, Harold Moon held that Japanese attack off. He single-handedly knocked out an entire Japanese platoon. I don't know where he got all the ammunition, but he was a one-man wave of destruction. And finally, just after daylight, uh, Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> came in. Got it. As the sun rose over Lady, 200 dead Japanese were found within 100 yards of Moon's foxhole. For his incredible bravery, Harold Moon was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. The Japanese had been repelled that night. And in the days that followed, the 6th Army made steady progress inland against stiff resistance from Lieutenant General Shiro Makino's 16th Division. 
The 16th had been part of the invasion force that MacArthur's troops had surrendered to two and a half years earlier, leading to the brutal Bataan Death March. They were very well equipped, very well trained. And their history didn't escape the men of the 24th Infantry. In the letter home, a 23-year-old Staten Island, New York artilleryman named Jack Tierney wrote of avenging one of the Japanese Army's most notorious atrocities. The initial force we fought was the infamous Death March men of Bataan. They had their turn, now they're doing their own march. But as the fierce fighting continued on Leyte, a major battle was erupting on the sea. Three days after the landings began, Admiral Takeo Kurita and his battleship group called the Center Force for heading full speed toward Leyte Gulf. This is the largest agglomeration of surface gunpower the Japanese Navy has ever put to sea. But the first part of Toyota's elaborate show plan had already miserably failed. It took so long for the Japanese to gather these forces that we uh, had already landed the troops by the time that the Japanese had pushed through. On its way north of the Philippines, they passed through the Palawan Passage where American submarines are waiting for them. And they sunk two Japanese heavy cruisers and damaged a third. It really put the striking power of the Show One plan kind of back on its heels. One of the cruisers sunk was Karita's flagship, the Otago. Karita's flagship is blown out from under him. He's fished from the sea, puts his flag aboard the Yamato, but he's a shaken man. And things would only get worse. Policy strikes at them as they're passing through the Sibuyan Sea, and his aviators have a field day. Five waves of airstrikes. They strike at the Musashi they put torpedo after torpedo into this 872-foot-long battleship. She finally surrenders, and Kirita is so devastated that he turns around his fleet to sort of regroup, and Halsey feels he's, he's done in the center force. Coming up next, the Battle of Surigao Strait, where some of the ghosts of Pearl Harbor exact a brutal revenge on the Japanese Navy. With Karita's center force in retreat after a brutal pounding from Bull Halsey in the Sibian Sea, Halsey turned his attention to what he perceived as the next threat, Japanese Admiral Ozawa's recently spotted northern carrier force, the one the Japanese had sent as a decoy. Halsey then decides he wants to go get the carriers. Admiral Ozawa, he wants to be noticed, and so he takes his carriers and dangles them north of Halsey. Halsey cannot resist. This is his moment at last, and he is not going to pass it up. Halsey takes everything he's got in pursuit, which is just what the Japanese want. With Halsey in hasty pursuit, the San Bernardino Strait lay totally unguarded. Admiral Kurita and his center force quickly reversed course and steamed straight toward the San Bernardino Strait. At the same time, the southern force stepped up to the plate. On the night of October 24th, the southern arm of the show plan makes its approach to the south of Leyte Island. Um, this is a powerful squadron under Admiral uh, Nishimura. They are counting on transiting Surigao Strait and attacking MacArthur from the south. Rear Admiral Jesse B. Oldendorf was given the task of defending the Surigao Strait using some of the ghosts of Pearl Harbor. You've got the Maryland, you've got the West Virginia, you've got the California. You've got six battle, battle wagons. These ships were lifted from the muck, patched up, refitted. 22-year-old James Holloway from Charleston, South Carolina, was a gunnery officer on the destroyer USS Bennion. You were an experienced officer by then. I was qualified to be a gunnery officer. I knew one end of the bullet from the other. 
When Jim Holloway peered into his binoculars in the early morning hours of October 25th, Nishimura's southern force stared straight back at him. And I remember at the time uh, thinking, my God, that looks just like a Japanese battleship. And of course it was a Japanese battleship. The Japanese had walked into a trap. Oldendorf's warships virtually destroyed Nishimura's southern force with a tactic taught at naval schools for centuries, the classic crossing of the T. Now, the Japanese had to come up through the straits in a column, and Oldendorf had this great opportunity to cross the T. One Japanese ship could fire its gun ahead, and yet every one of Oldendorf's battleships could fire their guns. Meanwhile, the destroyers would be attacking them on the flank. Oldendorf's destroyers and battleships worked like a meat grinder devouring the southern force. Nishimura's ship, the Yamashiro, was sunk, taking its captain to the bottom of the bloody waters of Surigao Strait. What was the Japanese goal here? Suicide? No, I don't think it was. The Japanese thought they could probably come in at night. And remember, they'd had great success earlier in the war in their night tactics. Admiral Nishimura was a fatalist. He had his orders, he had a mission, and he was going to conduct it. What time is it over? uh, 4.30. Hour and a half. Hour and a half, yes. And as we went again south through Lady Gulf, it was really a scene out of Dante's Inferno. The seas were covered with oil. There was wreckage all over the place. There were Japanese hanging onto the records, shouting to us as we went by. For Oldendorf and his men, victory had been complete. But Halsey's move north would have devastating consequences. Admiral Carita's work wasn't finished. We heard over the TBS, the talk between ship, the VHF circuit, it was Taffy 3 calling to say, we're under attack by Japanese cruisers and battleships. We felt we had destroyed the Japanese threat to the Leyte beachhead. And suddenly we find that our, the aircraft carriers are under attack by Japanese surface ships in their vicinity. I have to say, Ali, I went from the elation of a great victory to this feeling of it can't be happening. The captain of the USS Johnston told his men, this is going to be a fighting ship. I intend to go in harm's way. When War Stories returns, you'll see how he kept his word. In the early morning hours of 25 October 1944, while the smoke was clearing over the Surigao Strait, Admiral Takeo Kurita and his center force were bearing down on Leyte Gulf. The southern Japanese force has been hammered. You'd think at this point, it's all over. Admiral Kurita and the center force has no idea whatsoever what's happening to the south. So Kurita's charging onward, hoping to rendezvous with Nishimura in Leyte Gulf and wipe out MacArthur. Admiral Halsey is running north after the carriers. He's left nothing behind to watch the strait. The center force comes through unopposed. Three naval units named Taffy 1, 2, and 3 were patrolling off the east coast of the island of Samar. Taffy 3 is commanded by Rear Admiral Clifton A.F. Sprague, a good career Navy man. Taffy 3 consisted of six uh, escort carriers, three destroyers, and four destroyer escorts. Listening on his ship's radio to reports of the Surigao Strait battle was 22-year-old Tom Stevenson from Long Island, New York. He was the communications officer in one of Taffy 3's destroyer escorts, 
the USS Samuel Roberts. We were aware that we had won a terrific victory. And uh, so the next morning, the exec came on the squawk box in the ship and said, if you come up on deck, you can see the remnants of the Japanese fleet from last night's battle fleeing over the horizon. So naturally, everybody uh, ran up on deck and we were always looking out at the horizon. We could see these big ships way out. But what the men of Taffy 3 saw wasn't the defeated Southern force, it was Admiral Kurita. All of a sudden, the seas opened up, and the general alarm rang, and everybody to report to their battle station. The Battle of Samar was on. The only thing standing between this massive center force and, and MacArthur's troops on Leyte is Taffy 3 and the other two Taffy groups, ships that, that do not register on the same scale of force as what's coming against them. Destroyer escorts are the smallest combat ships we've got in the fleet. They are mere pipsqueaks, 306 feet long, uh, 1,200 tons. And the Japanese have? The center force is, based, is built around the Yamato with 22 other warships. The Yamato alone outweighs all 13 ships of Taffy 3. It's, it's the cruel hand of fate is what it is. Captain indicated that our chances of surviving were not very great, but we were going to do a lot of damage to them. I guess we all felt we were done for. I went over and looked at the radar screen, and there was this big blob, bigger than a silver dollar. 25-year-old Bob Hagen from San Francisco was the gunnery officer aboard the destroyer the USS Johnston. This had to be a task force. So I went running up to the bridge, and the captain, he ordered all hands come to general quarters, engage the major portion of the Jap fleet. The captain of the USS Johnston was 36-year-old Cherokee Indian Ernest Evans from Oklahoma. Before sailing uh, for the Pacific, he said, I intend to go into harm's way, and if you don't want it to go along, you better get off now. So he was hot to go. Well, Admiral Ziggy Sprague ordered aircraft up to defend against Corita's force, Ernest Evans immediately began laying a smoke screen. Now this screen he laid was about a mile and a half long, essentially changing the battle from a daytime battle to a nighttime. So the Jap Admiral was assuming we were one of Halsey's fast carrier groups that had battleships and cruisers. The Johnston peels off alone ahead of orders. You've got a single Fletcher-class destroyer moving in against a line of six heavy cruisers, a force of four battleships, and the odds are just on, this is completely unprecedented. And we start making this bare-ass approach as we close in, like all of a sudden, all of these overwhelming ships are being attacked by one destroyer. <laughs> Though fiercely outgunned by the Japanese, the Johnston successfully launched all 10 of her torpedoes, hitting a Japanese battleship and sinking a cruiser. But the Johnston wasn't Kirita's only problem. They shoot everything, 25 millimeter, 40 millimeter, or equivalent 45 millimeter, and main batteries. One of Taffy 3's pilots now strafing the Japanese in his Grumman FM2 was 24-year-old Dick Roby from Chatham, New Jersey. Now you have to remember 18.1 inches was the largest naval rifles ever built. Yeah, I was right over the top of that battleship, about 300 feet. And the nice thing was he couldn't shoot at me because I was too close. And I just flew right up the center line of that battleship. Roby and other pilots would continue the attacks, even when they had run out of ammunition. 
But despite the distraction and destruction air power brought to the battle, the Japanese scored a direct hit on the Johnston, one that Hagen later described as a puppy getting hit by a truck. We got hit. It was a tremendous hit by three uh, Japanese uh, battleship uh, projectiles. Despite scores of his men killed and wounded, and though badly injured himself, Ernest Evans wasn't out of the game. At 7.50 a.m., when Ziggy Sprague called for a torpedo attack by the destroyers Hull and Heerman, a torpedoless Johnston joined the formation. The destroyer escorts Raymond, Dennis, Butler, and the Roberts also lined up. Our main weapon to really cause some damage was our torpedoes. We just fell in behind the Johnston and the Hull, and we saw them started to get hit pretty badly. The melee continued for another hour. Toward the 9 o'clock, a new new source of the enemy came upon the scene, a squadron of destroyers. So the captain said, okay, Hagen, take on this, <laughs> this squadron. So I started firing at 10,000 yards. The cruiser broke off and started retreating, and the next destroyer came up. We started firing at that, and it turned away. but the Japanese still managed to sink the destroyer whole. The Samuel B. Roberts lay dead in the water, engulfed in flames. Half her 200 crew members dead, many more wounded or badly burned. One of the chief petty officers came crawling along the deck, and he was awfully burned, and we, we shot him with morphine. He begged to be put in the water. We put him in the water, but he just floated away. I mean, he was gonna die, and, uh, but he wanted to be put in. There was no power, there was nothing, and there was nothing much you could do, really. So that's when the captain decided to abandon the ship. I couldn't wait to get in the water, really, because I knew if I got off that ship alive that I was going to live. Within the hour, a final Japanese shelling also spelled the end for the crippled USS Johnston. Sixty of her 325-man crew had been killed in the battle. She takes hit after hit after hit. Steam lines breaking below decks. Men are being killed by force of shock by flame. Bob Hagen was late getting the word, but Ernest Evans had finally decided to abandon ship. I'm still fighting, find a way we can get out of this mess, and there's no one on the bridge. So I look aft, and there's a stream of bodies in the water, 100 yards. Obviously, he's declared abandoned ship. So when I finally jumped into the water, I had this feeling that we had paid our way. And then the second thought was, now what in the hell do I do next? Coming up on War Stories, harrowing tales of survival at sea. By mid-morning on 25 October 1944, Admiral Corita's Sutter Force had wrought hell upon the ships of Taffy 3. The Gambier Bay, the escort carrier, the first U.S. carrier to be sunk by naval gunfire will go down in this action. After the battle's over, the carrier St. Lowe will be hit by a kamikaze and sunk. The first U.S. warship lost to a kamikaze. Both ships joined the Johnston, Hole and Roberts at the bottom of the Philippine Sea. Hundreds of their seamen were either dead or adrift in shark-infested waters. Sailors Bob Hagen and Tom Stevenson were among the survivors. When the sharks first came around, I said, everybody splash. <laughs> and... Almost all of them splashed. The second time, half of them splashed. The third time, a fourth of them. Finally, I said, well, screw it. 
<laughs> when the ship finally went down and there were no explosions from the depth charges and everything, I said, oh, we got it made. But suddenly, one of the USS Johnston's submerged depth charges went off beneath Hagen. It's equivalent to putting a garden hose up your rear end and turning it on full. I also got sick to my stomach. I'm throwing up and, oh God, I'm a, a, a mess. But Hagen was alive, hanging to a raft. Karita's ships had taken their share of hits from the Wildcats and Avengers of Taffy 2 and 3. Three of his cruisers had been sunk and a fourth was barely afloat. But with so many American ships sunk or damaged, victory was certainly in Karita's grasp. But then the unthinkable happened. Karita withdrew. Admiral Karita is a fatigued man. He wasn't making clear decisions, and indeed, he didn't really have clarity about what the strength of the force opposing him was. He really starts to have doubts as the morning moves on about whether or not these aircraft are ever going to relent, about whether or not American battleships are suddenly going to appear over the horizon. Does he know the fate of the Southern attack force? Kirita learns about the fate of the Southern force after he's made the decision to withdraw, but it confirms his, it confirms his suspicion that this is, has, has become a futile mission. What happens to Captain Evans from the Johnson? He does not survive the battle. His body's never found. His body is never found. For his leadership in the valiant battle against the Japanese fleet, Ernest Evans was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Taffy 3 was hung out on a clothesline to dry all by itself against this force. They had uh, no support from Halsey. He's hundreds of miles to the north. While Taffy 3 was being pummeled by the center force, Bull Halsey had caught up with and had begun obliterating Ozawa's defenseless northern decoy force. At his headquarters in Pearl Harbor, Admiral Chester Nimitz was monitoring Admiral Kincaid's frantic calls for help all morning. And he wanted to know why they had gone unheeded. There's a famous cable from Nimitz to Halsey that's perceived by many to be a terrible insult to Halsey. He composes a message to Halsey. Where is, repeat, where is Task Force 34? Task Force 34 being the battleship force. Well, Navy practice for, to confound eavesdropping Japanese snoopers was to pad any message with a nonsense phrase at the beginning of the message and another nonsense phrase at the end of the message. The end padding that is attached to this message is the phrase, the world wonders. Now, that piece of padding was not chopped off during the transmission process. Halsey takes this as an armor-piercing broadside of sarcasm. He flings his cap to the deck. He's cursing. He's practically in tears. Halsey ordered some of his force to finish off Ozawa, while he reluctantly turned part of his fleet around and headed south to join the fight against Karita. But it was already too late for the men of Taffy 3. These guys are in for a long ordeal at sea. Their plane's flying by and they're waving at us. I expected that afternoon or evening to be picked up. Despite being spotted by U.S. aircraft, hours slowly passed as the wounded and exhausted men of Taffy 3 floated helplessly in the sea. No one came to get them. The only assistance they received came from a surprising source, the oil slick from the sunken ships. It kept the sharks away from us. I don't think the sharks really wanted to get into that oil. Secondly, it coated you from the sun. Being on the water, you know how you can get burned. How long can the men adrift at sea hang on? Find out when War Stories returns. I said, God, if you ever let me out of this water, 
I'm going to get married, raise a family, and be a uh, uh, number one husband and family man. Two days adrift on the Philippine Sea put the men of Taffy 3 on the verge of death from battle wounds, exposure, shark attacks, and madness from sun and salt water. Everybody had gotten weak and everybody was hallucinating. Some of them uh, said that they had a date, crazy things like that. We had to keep him from swimming away, but others swam off and uh, never saw them again. Bob Hagen has never forgotten speaking to a petty officer who was haunted by what he had done to a man bitten in the back by a shark. He's in mortal pain. This guy is screaming, pleading to be done in. And uh, this first-class petty officer drew out his knife and stabbed him. And he came up to me and said, did I do right? And I said, you did perfectly right. That's the second day came to a close, we really started to lose hope. A seven-ship task force under the command of Lieutenant Commander James Baxter had left Leyte's San Pedro Bay to search for survivors. Fifty hours in the water was about to end for 1,150 men of Taffy 3. We were, you know, about on our last legs, and then uh, we saw these uh, small vessels. Of course, we went crazy, but they had the guns trained on us because we looked like Japanese. And we were screaming, we're Americans, we're Americans. And some big old hairy sailor reached down, grabbed me by the crotch, and I flew through the air up on deck. The Japanese plan to stop MacArthur's landings and sink the fleet assembled in Leyte Gulf had been a dismal failure. The Japanese had sunk only six American ships while losing 26 of their own. The Battle of Leyte Gulf ended the Japanese Navy as an effective fighting force. I'm proud of the way that little ship accomplished what it did. Tom Stevenson, who after the war returned to the family's shipping business, isn't shy about Taffy 3's contribution to MacArthur's triumphant return to the Philippines. Taffy 3 kept the thing going uh, so that the invasion went right on schedule. After the war, Bob Hagen ran a New Orleans personnel agency for 40 years. But his story of survival at Leyte isn't the only notch in his belt. He'd also battled the Japanese at Guadalcanal. That was historic. And then this battle was certainly historic, so I'm sort of smug about having been through two of the major sea battles of all time. James Holloway from the USS Benion would remain in the Navy, eventually achieving the rank of Admiral and serving on the Joint Chiefs of Staff as the Chief of Naval Operations. Can you see anywhere in which that battle could have or should have been fought differently? Halsey was really basing his decision to go after the force coming down from Japan on the reports from the carriers that they had essentially annihilated those Japanese, and they had really done not too much harm. One of the very few tactical errors that Halsey makes in the whole war. That's right. And Ollie, let me say, I think he did the right thing. You have to depend upon your intelligence. And his intelligence was faulty. And what he did was the bold thing. And you've got to have boldness. If, if you played everything so safe, uh, we'd still be working our way into Japan. <laughs> Six days after MacArthur's beach landings had begun, the battle on the high seas was over. But the brutal ground operations on Leyte would continue for another seven months. 
and men like Army PFC Angelo Montaglioni were paying the price. I would say if I had a jet machine gun, if I wasn't more than 30 feet away from us, the minute I got hit, I knew there was something wrong because I had really a lot of blood. I had five bullets shot at me. I got hit with three, and I had two in my left leg. The Japanese were their usual very tenacious selves in the mountainous jungle of Leyte. When was the island finally declared secure? On the 25th of December. General MacArthur declared the island secured. Well, it was anything but secured. There were many thousands of Japanese who were still on the island. There was a very protracted, very bitter mop-up period that extended into May. At the peak of operations, 260,000 American troops were on Leyte. 3,500 made the ultimate sacrifice. And the Japanese are estimated to have lost 50 to 60,000. Japanese had the stoic warrior virtues of tenacity, endurance, and a sheer willingness to die. Bushido. Bushido. At Leyte, however, they ran out of food. They experienced the kind of breakdown of morale and discipline, the likes of which had, had seldom been seen in the Pacific, because usually they were all killed before they got to that point. Was there a sense that they must be desperate? Oh, I always thought they were desperate. I, uh, I think uh, after they lost the, the control of the sea and the air, uh, they were left to starve to death. They just left them there to rot. And they knew it. They knew it. Sixty years after fighting their way across Leyte, Paul Austin and Ben Wally have remained close friends. Ben went on to a long career with the Internal Revenue Service, and Paul spent 31 years in the telecommunications business. What's the toughest part? of that whole campaign as, as you remember it today? Laying on the ground in, the, in a dark jungle and you can't see your hand before your face and, and there's a man over here about six feet away from you that's been shot through the stomach and you can't do anything for him. No chance in the world to get him out. The man would wake up about every hour and he would call for his mother. That's hard. More in the Battle of Leyte Gulf when War Stories returns. During her 19 months of service in World War II, the USS New Jersey steamed more than 200,000 miles and shot down 20 Japanese aircraft, five in one day. But in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, she helped lay waste to the once invincible Japanese Imperial Navy. The Japanese had always wanted a decisive battle, and at Leyte, they got one. Over the course of three days in the Pacific, the Americans had, in the words of Halsey, beaten, routed, and broken the Japanese Navy. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.